It is great to be together, gathered in a risen Savior's name this morning. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah is right. The Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead is a big deal, a very big deal. And the Bible does not in any way teach reincarnation or annihilation. It teaches resurrection, bodily resurrection from the dead. Inasmuch as is appointed for men to die once, and after this the judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without, with reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. That's Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. Jesus said of himself, I am the resurrection and the life, John eleven twenty five. Under inspiration, the apostle Paul wrote, for I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. That's 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 5. Oh yes, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is a very big deal. The biblical doctrine of bodily resurrection is hard to miss because it dominates your Bible and mine. For example, Jesus is called the firstborn of the dead in Revelation 1.5. For example, he, Jesus, who was delivered over to the cross because of our transgressions, he was raised in bodily resurrection because of our justification. Romans 4 verse 25. For example, the resurrected Jesus is called the firstfruits of those who are asleep in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. And the biblical doctrine of bodily resurrection is such a big deal that the scripture informs us that both the righteous and the unrighteous will be bodily resurrected. The Lord Jesus himself said, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. That's John 5, 28 and 29. Church, we are seeing in these moments that in Scripture, the Lord Jesus Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead is a very, very big deal. Our Lord said of himself in Revelation 1, 17 and 18, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead is huge. Messiah's bodily resurrection was anticipated hundreds of years before the first Christmas. Psalm 16, verse 10 for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that's the Hebrew word for the grave, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. God's power for us in our walking with Him as believers is according to the magnitude of the power which God the Father unleashed to resurrect God the Son from the dead. That's Ephesians 1, 18 to 23's truth. 1 Corinthians 15, 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain, 1 Corinthians 15, 14. But hallelujah, Christ is risen from the grave. Therefore, preaching is not in vain and faith in him is not in vain. Amen. Incredible body of Christ. It's very clear from Scripture and from experience that Christ Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead is a huge and a big deal. Jesus had three and a half years with his disciples in public ministry. What did he do with that precious and choice and fleeting and strategic time? He proved he was God. He did his Father's will. He stayed on message. He stayed on task. He equipped his disciples to stay on message. And that equipping included telling them that he would die and he would raise be raised from the dead. Then Jesus had 40 days after his bodily resurrection to be on earth before he ascended back to heaven 
What did he do with that crucial and unique and special and sweet time period? He appeared to Peter and then to the 12. He appeared to more than 5,000 people in one huge group. And, and he promised the coming of the Holy Spirit. Getting even more precise, within those 40 days post-resurrection, before ascension, what did Jesus do in those few hours? One of the things he did was he spent time walking down a certain remote rural road and meeting two men who were walking on that road. And what did he do? What did the risen Christ do with these two uniquely blessed men who were walking on a backwoods road? How did he use that telling time, that limited time, and that intimate time? He asked questions. He ate food to prove he was alive after being dead. He served spiritual food afresh by appealing to those two men what the whole Testament scriptures said about everything, and particularly about Messiah. He told them from the scriptures what he came to do, what he accomplished, and what they could bank on going forward the rest of their lives. Boy, I wish I'd been on that road with those two men walking along, discouraged, disoriented, when the risen Christ came in stride with them. I wish I'd been there. Turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, please. Luke chapter 24. The text for this morning, this Resurrection Sunday morning, is a rather lengthy one, Luke 24, verses 13 through 53, but I will seek to move my way through it. Please track with me, follow in your Bibles. Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 13 and ending at verse 53. I'm going to read these verses, of course, with you, and I'm going to pause as I'm reading to make some observation, interpretation, and application. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible, beginning at verse 13 of Luke 24. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. When it says of them in this verse, it refers generally to the big group of believers in Jesus rather than merely to the 11 disciples that we know from the New Testament. These men were a subset of a larger group of believers in Jesus Christ. Verse 14, And they were conversing with each other about all these things which had taken place. These things that they were conversing about were the things that pertained to Jesus' arrest, Jesus' illegal trials, Jesus' crucifixion, and word of a dramatic resurrection. Verses 15 and 16. And it came about that while they were conversing and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. You do know that the risen Christ is traveling with you in your lives by his Holy Spirit. 15. And it came about that while they were conversing and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, and their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. Will you notice with me that their eyes were prevented from recognizing him? There's an implication in that, that their eyes had to be prevented from recognizing him, tells us that he is recognizable, except eyes are prevented from seeing him. This argues, church, for a same body resurrection. That is to say that our Lord Jesus was raised to life in the same body, glorified, which he had prior to dying for us. For example, he still had the nail-scarred holes in his hands. For example, he still had the spear wound under his ribcage. 
which Doubting Thomas saw and felt firsthand. Now, there's more. Since Christ's pattern of resurrection is the pattern for all of our resurrections, two things. Number one, we will recognize loved ones who are in heaven with us. Aren't you glad for that? Number two, our loved ones will recognize us when we are in heaven with them. Verse 17, and he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. Question, church. Did the risen Christ ask that question to gain information? Certainly not. Christ asked the question to teach the men he was walking with what they needed to learn. And we see the exact same thing going on in verse 19, if you skip down. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, and in the sight of God and of all the people. Jesus often, in the New Testament, asked questions to teach. Verses 18 to 24, a larger section of verses now. And one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? Boy, that's ironic. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word, in the sight of God and of all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. And also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and they did not find his body and came saying they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women had said, but him they did not see. Really, Cleopas had it right. He said, Jesus is a prophet. Yes, Cleopas, Jesus is a prophet. But more than that, Cleopas, Jesus is also priest. Jesus is also king. Jesus is also savior. Jesus is also God. Jesus, Cleopas had it right. Jesus is mighty indeed and in word. The Jewish leaders, yes, they had pushed hard for his crucifixion. The nation of Israel was hoping that Jesus would redeem them. But redeem them from what? The nation of Israel was hoping that Jesus would redeem them from the Roman Empire's boot being on their throat. In military occupation, in exorbitant taxation, and in national disgrace. But that nation... Those believing that they needed redemption from Rome failed to see what I trust none of us will fail to see this morning, that what they needed to be saved from was sin. Do you know that? Have you experienced a crucified and a risen Lord Jesus as Savior from your sin? Your parents' faith won't do that for you. Your spouse's faith will not do that for you. It's a personal faith and trust in Christ that will do that for you. Oh, yes, the Jews of Jesus' day wanted salvation, but not from sin. They wanted a salvation from Caesar. Let me be a little blunt because I love you. Let me ask you directly. Easter Sunday, Resurrection Lord's Day 2015, Nassau, Bahamas. From what are you hoping that Jesus will loose you? From what? What are you hoping Christ, the risen Christ, will free you from? Sickness is not big enough. Money problems is not big enough. Crime is not big enough. That is not big enough. Marriage breakdown is not big enough. Unemployment is not big enough. Parenting pain is not big enough. ISIS is not big enough. Here's the thing. 
the big enough thing from which the crucified and risen Savior will release you is sin. Sin's penalty, sin's pleasure, sin's power, sin's presence one day. Christ is the only one who can deliver any of us from sin's penalty, from sin's pleasure, from sin's power, and one day when we see him through the rapture of the church or through physical death, he will deliver us from sin's very presence. That's what I most need from Christ. That's what you all most need from Christ. Has Jesus done that for you yet? I'm not asking if you're religious. Has Jesus released you, forgiven you of your sins yet? I'm not asking you if you're moral. I'm not asking you if you're better than your neighbor. I'm asking you, have you let Jesus release you and to forgive you from your sins by transferring your trust off of whatever or whoever and onto him alone? I'm going to give you a chance to do that a little later in this message. But going back to Cleopas, he also had it right with respect to Jesus being totally alive from the dead. Verse 25 through 27. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Wow, I wish I was there. Jesus took the Torah, the prophets, the poetry, all of the Old Testament, and he explained to them on that remote, dusty road how it all centered in him, how it all integrated into his person and into his mission as Messiah. Oh, I wish it was there. Will you notice that in these verses 25 to 27 that our risen Lord Jesus was Scripture-focused He was scripture-focused. Now, this is key for us to see, brothers and sisters, because Jesus looked at these two men doubting his resurrection, called their doubt foolishness, but corrected their doubt with scripture. He said, you're slow to believe that I'm alive from the dead, but the remedy to your slowness to believe in my resurrection is the Bible. The scriptures. It's true for all of us today. Verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Yes, when our Lord Jesus intended to correct misinformation, when he intended to educate in the truth, he prioritized God's written, revealed, inspired Old Testament, which was what was available at that point. Verse 25, Jesus references the prophets. The prophets was the common Jewish way of grouping the major prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, plus the minor prophets of Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Jesus said, if you knew those prophets, and if you believe what they prophesied, you would have no doubt believing I'm alive from the dead. Jesus was really saying to those men that they were foolish if they missed what the prophets said about him, and particularly about his suffering on the cross and his entrance into glory via a bodily resurrection and ascension back to his father. You know, I'm foolish, and you're foolish, if we miss biblical truth, which all centers in Jesus Christ. And so I ask you, Do you make time for the word each day? Do you love the word of God more than your necessary grits and tuna in the morning? I'm learning. (laughs) Do you memorize God's word? Do you ever take a course at the Teleos Bible Institute just down the street? Don't be foolish. As Jesus defines foolishness, 
verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, verse 27, I'll read it. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. In this verse 27, I see two things. Number one, our Lord systematically taught these men, the Old Testament Bible, and he saw that as being key. He saw teaching them the Bible as being key and the first thing to do when it came to straightening them out and setting them right about what to believe. Put another way, our risen Christ saw the Old Testament Bible as being profoundly relevant in and of itself. This being said, why is it that many Christians today, evangelical Christians, request that preachers and Bible teachers make the Word of God relevant? It is relevant. I appreciate what John MacArthur told a room full of pastors in Toronto when I was there on occasion. Dr. MacArthur said this, the cry for relevance is the road to irrelevance. Think about that. The second thing I see in verse 27 is that the Old Testament Bible books all pertain to Christ. That's what Jesus said. He said, all things concerning himself in all scriptures. Someone has said that the Old Testament is Christ's backstage and the New Testament is Christ's center stage. Some have said that the Old Testament is Christ concealed and the New Testament Christ revealed. Some have said that the Old Testament is Christ anticipated and the New Testament is Christ showcased. But Jesus Christ is at the center of the word of God from Genesis through to Revelation. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. The things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now, we've been going a little while, and you're going to get a little bit of a heart palpitation when I say, now I'm ready for my first point. And the first point of this message is this. There's proof of his Bible's priority. He fed them scripture. There's proof of the risen Christ putting priority on the Bible because he fed scripture to the two men on the road to Emmaus. And I'm going to take you through five proofs right in the text of scripture's priority in the mind and heart of Jesus. First proof. Jesus did not correct their foolishness by ordering them into a discussion group. Nor did he correct their foolishness by telling them to do an archaeological dig. He didn't correct their foolishness by starting a government commission. He didn't correct their foolishness by telling them to lobby political leaders. No, When Christ corrected the men's foolishness, he called them to better believe the Old Testament. Jesus corrected their foolishness with Scripture. Jesus corrected their foolishness with Scripture. My friends, biblical Christianity is in the heart, but it's also in the head. We are to think thoughts after God as believing believers in Jesus, and we're to use the word of God as how we think God's thoughts after him. That's how we foster faith. You want greater faith? Get in this book. The second proof of Scripture's priority to Jesus, verses 25 and 26 once again, and he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Jesus went back to the Old Testament Bible to call them to proper decisions. Do you let the Bible call you to proper decisions? Christ 
evaluated their wrong decision to disbelieve the messianic prophecies about him having to suffer and then rising from the dead, and he evaluated how to fix that problem by taking them to the Old Testament to make proper decisions. You want to make proper decisions? Keep your nose in the book. How will you make proper decisions in your life? Use your time. We all have the same amount of time. Use your time to prioritize studying and knowing the book so that you could obey it. A while back, Walmart did a careful study to see, on average, how many minutes one of their customers spends in one of their stores. The survey was rather remarkable. It showed that the average Walmart shopper spends 21 minutes in the store. It's not very long to make a lot of purchasing decisions. That's why they cram the aisles with what they want to push. That's why they have all the merchandise they especially have high profitability on right by the cash registers. 21 minutes to make shopping decisions. We all make quick decisions on the Bahamas. Every day we're making lightning quack decisions, driving, parenting, investing, speaking, resting. We make rapid fire decisions a lot quicker than 21 minutes if the truth be told. So how do we know we're making wise decisions in those rapid fire settings? By whether our decision lines up with the word of God. And how do you know if your decision lines up with the Word of God? By knowing the Word of God. And how do you know the Word of God? By being in the Word of God. Not just on Sundays when I'm speaking for 40 minutes, but in your own homes. If allowed in your own workplaces to keep our nose in the holy book. The Gideons understand this, that global organization that believes that just placing the scriptures where people can get them will make an eternal difference in their lives. And if you go to Bahamar when it's opened or to Atlantis when it is now open and you stay in a room and you pull out a drawer, there could very well be a Gideon Bible. And if you open that Gideon Bible in the front or the back, you may see where to turn in this Bible if you are lonely, needing guidance, fearful, and then the page number in the Gideon Bible. And, and people who read these Gideon Bibles look up the page numbers and they look to see what God has to say about their situation. That's because the Bible is relevant. That's because the Bible is powerful. That's because the Bible is true. So you want to make good decisions? Return to God's word. The Bible ought to be a priority when we're faced with a decision. It was A.W. Tozer who wrote this question. If God gives you a watch, are you honoring him more by asking him what time it is or by simply consulting the watch? Scripture is the watch that God has given us. Tozer's point is if he's given you a watch to tell you the time, it's it's better to consult the watch to reverence God and respect him for giving you the watch. The Bible is your watch. Wear it. Consult it. Live it. So please notice with me the high priority of Scripture that Jesus placed on making proper decisions, helping these guys make proper decisions. It's a second proof that Scripture was a priority to Christ. The third proof, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the Scriptures. Jesus next sculpted, shaped, chipped away their worldview with a survey of the Old Testament. The risen Christ gave the ultimate Old Testament Bible lecture on theology proper, systematic theology, historical theology, eschatology, and Christology, the ultimate seminary class on a dusty, deserted, rural 
road with just two in the class. That's way cool. So please notice with me the high priority on Scripture with respect to piecing together history and current events. Jesus says, you want to piece together what's been happening in Jerusalem? You want to figure out all the things that have happened since Jesus Christ was arrested, tried, crucified, and allegedly resurrected? You want to put that all together? Go to the Old Testament and see it's predicted. Now we go on to 28 to 32 in our chapter. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he would go farther. And they urged him, saying, stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. And he went in to stay with them. And it came about that when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began serving it to them. And their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Jesus gave them good heartburn. And he gave them good heartburn by helping them observe the Old Testament, interpret the Old Testament, and apply the Old Testament. Good heartburn. Here's the recipe for good heartburn for you and me. Any Christian can bring on good heartburn for him or herself. Begin with serious and generous time in the Bible. Combine equal parts of observation, that's answering the question, what does it say, with equal parts of interpretation, that's answering the question, what does it mean, with equal parts of application, that's answering the question, what difference does it make in my life? And then after you spend generous time in the Bible, after you observe, interpret, and apply, then blend this together with the spoon called prayer. That's how you give yourself heartburn. And last, be committed to following this recipe for good heartburn no matter what it costs you. It will cost you. Generous time in the word, observation, interpretation, application, and prayer, and it'll cost. I was on a missions trip to the northern tribes of Thailand, and I was introduced to a rather rugged Disciple Training Center. It was full of committed Thai young men and women who were there for the express purpose of training to be church planters and pastors. The center also happened to be completely out of money. They could only afford to feed the students broth from used, yes, I said used, chicken bones and some kind of one vegetable. The students at this discipleship training center had the very same meal and only one meal a day every day. Broth from used chicken bones and the vegetable of the day. They had a viewpoint on their diet because after I heard about their diet, I took some of them aside and said, how do you feel about all this? And they told me this, and I quote, this is fine as long as we get to study more of the Bible. This food is fine. Brother or sister, do you have good heartburn? Be in your Bible lots. Observe, interpret, apply. All the time praying. Never quit. No matter how much it may cost you, never quit. There is a long line of men and women in history who have been burned at the stake alive, stoned to death, that you and I could have an accurate translation of the Old and New Testaments. Let's not squander this gift. Don't quit. Because once we feel heartburn, 
The Spirit of God will move us on to spiritual growth in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Christ, and it will bring about increased sanctification that we could say no to sin and yes to righteousness. The fifth proof of Scripture's priority to Jesus, skip down to verses 44 to 46. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. You can count on that. If you ask the Holy Spirit to open your mind to the Scripture, he will do so. The author of Scripture lives inside you if you are saved. Will you notice, fifth and last, the Savior's high priority on Scripture with respect to inner personal fulfillment? Inner personal fulfillment. In the verses I've just read, 44 to 46, as God himself, Jesus' spoken word while he was on earth with Scripture. Jesus' life and death and resurrection fulfilled the Old Testament messianic prophecies and opened minds are needed to understand the scriptures. And prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Jesus opened the minds of believers to this end. Now the Spirit of God does that. And so the last proof of five that Jesus put a high priority on scripture after rising from the dead was that Scripture tells us the way of salvation because it centers in Christ, his person, and his work. So that's the first point. There's proof of the Bible's priority in that Jesus fed it to the, fed it to the men on the road. Now let's go back to verse 28. I'm going to read 28 to 31. And... They approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he would go farther. And they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. And he went in to stay with them. And it came about that when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Yes, the Lord Jesus himself opened their eyes, which had been previously prevented from recognizing him. And verse 31 says that he vanished. He vanished from their sight. Dr. John MacArthur writes on this, and I quote, his resurrection body, though real and tangible and even capable of ingesting food, nonetheless possessed certain properties that indicate it was glorified, altered in a mysterious way. Christ could appear and disappear bodily, as seen in this text. His body could pass through solid objects such as grave clothes or the walls and doors of a closed room. He could apparently travel great distances, for by the time his disciples returned to Jerusalem, Jesus had already appeared to Peter. The fact that he ascended into heaven bodily demonstrates that his resurrection body was already fit for heaven. Yet, it was his body, the same one that was missing from the tomb, even retaining identifying features such as nail wounds. He was no ghost or phantom. End of quote. That's very thought-provoking to me. Beginning at verse 32. And they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they arose that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. And they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. And while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. 
And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it for joy and were marveling, and he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Please recall that the first point of this message is simply that there's proof of Christ's Bible's priority. He fed them scripture. Verses 41 to 43 give us our second point of this message, and it's this. There's proof of Christ's bodily resurrection. He ate food. There's proof of his bodily resurrection. He ate food. Verse 41 is striking to me. And while they could, while they still could not believe it for joy. What? They could not believe it for joy? They could not believe it for joy. Say what? They could not believe it for joy. Two things, one very odd and one not so odd. Let's start with the odd thing. Their joy blocked their belief. You know what this means? It means that believing is more than delighting in. Believing is more than welcoming a surprise. Because joy at times can even block belief. That's odd. The second thing that is not so odd is that while they still could not believe it because of their joy, basically the Lord Jesus requested ordinary food. You know why he did that? He wasn't hungry. To help them believe. If you're here this morning in this congregation struggling to believe in a risen Christ, he is willing to help you through his word and by his spirit. He didn't ask to eat something because he was hungry. He asked to eat something to help them believe he was alive from the dead. Ghosts don't have stomachs. Phantoms can't swallow. Jesus ate the food to prove that he was real and alive from the dead in the same body, although his father had made the state of that same body glorified. Really, church, when you take an overview, big look at chapter 24 of Luke, you can see that the risen Christ is either serving food or he is eating food. It is a reoccurring proof of him being alive from the dead after being dead. Verse 30, see this with me. And it came about that when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Verse 35, see it with me. And they, and they began to relate their experience on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. Verses 41 to 43. And while he was still, while they still could not believe it for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. <coughs> in all of the after resurrection settings, Jesus took food, and it had more to do with offering proof that he's alive from the dead than it had to do with fellowship or even with nutrition. Ideals don't eat. Spirits don't swallow. Ghosts don't chew. Phantoms don't have stomachs. And so there's proof of Christ's bodily resurrection in this passage. He ate food. Now the passage, I know it's long, I trust you're tracking with me still, has 10 more verses, 44 to 53, quickly. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law and the prophets and the uh, the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands and blessed them. 
And it came about that while he was blessing them, he parted from them. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Have you ever heard and did something about the proclamation in verse 46 that the Christ should suffer for you, I'll add, and rise from the dead again for your salvation, I might add? Have you ever gotten to that place? The Bible's central message is around Christ, and the central message of the Bible is rather simple, that a holy God has reached down in grace to rebels like all of us. And that God sent his choice and only son to die a cruel, heinous, torturous death on a cross to shed his blood to wash away the believer's sin, past, present, and future sin. Have you come under that blood by faith? You may be here this morning, and you know you haven't yet. You may be here this morning, and you're not sure if you have yet. May we bow our heads, every head bowed and each eye closed. In love and on behalf of Jesus, I would like to speak to those that aren't sure that they're saved, to those who are pretty sure they aren't yet saved, and those of us who are saved, you're praying for the people in this service that need Jesus. Sin separates us from a holy God, and we are all sinners. Jesus, dying in our place, solved our sin debt because he had no sin. And he could take all of your sin upon himself on the cross as your substitute. the person who will accept the free gift of salvation by God's grace through Christ admits that they are a sinner. If you make that admission quietly from your heart, tell God that you're a sinner. The person who wants to be saved thanks God that Jesus died to pay for their sins. You thank God for that in the quietness of your heart. person who wants to receive the gifts of forgiveness in heaven transfers all trust onto Christ alone. Tell the Lord you're transferring your trust to his son, Jesus, and only Jesus. The person who wants to receive the gift of heaven through Christ believes what we're talking about today, that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Tell God you believe that Christ rose from the dead. If you prayed that prayer, it's not a magic prayer. It's just communicating your need and belief to God. He heard you, and he has saved you. John 1.12, but as many as received him, Christ, he gave the right to become children of God, even to them who believe on his name, Jesus' name. I welcome you to God's forever family. And if you have never found a church, a Bible-believing church, you're invited to this one. We'd love to have you come and be a part of us. Lord, I thank you for what you've done in these moments. I pray for new believers in Christ to have courage in a moment to acknowledge that they have trusted Jesus and give us a joy in our hearts because brothers and sisters have been born again into the family of God. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been a great morning. It's not over yet. It's been a great morning. Thank you for tracking with me as the Spirit of God taught the Word of God to you this morning. And may we not just get smarter in our heads, may we get different in our hearts for what we've heard from the risen Christ today. We have a little video clip for you. Let it wash over your heart in belief. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. 
He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yes! That's my king! That's my king!